One of the things that Christians believe, um, I think this is characteristic of every Christian tradition. I haven't studied them all, but I've never met a Christian who didn't believe that God's promises are the same, that, that all of God's promises are the same for everybody, that there's no, there's no special group that gets, that gets, um, uh, a different deal, that it's available to everybody. We just heard about the Gentiles who become co-heirs of the promise, that there's no, there's no secret group, there's no, there's no special, um, uh, collection of people that have done something differently or that have the right heritage to have a different, um, a different set of promises than the ones that God gives us. This is, this is something that, that we believe about, about Christians. We, we believe that it's a good deal. That, that it's a good deal, but there's no special lane for different people. That we all get TSA pre-checked. We all get early boarding. There's no, there's no separate group next to us that have a different deal. But, but, different people are going to value different promises of God differently because we're different. That, that our circumstances are different from each other, but we're also different. In particular, we're different from people in other cultures. And we're going to see uh, today that that really uh, play out because uh, we have different understandings today of family than they did in the first century. And when Jesus talks to people in the first century, it's probably going to land on us differently um, for better and for worse than it would have in the first century. So we're going to be looking at the way Jesus talks about family um, because Jesus um, is going to discuss uh, uh, his uh, his uh, ministry, his, his messiahship um, in the particular area of family. So we're looking at God's promises and... Um, uh, the the what we've been looking at for really the the since the beginning of this conversation back in June we've been looking at um, the responses that people have to Jesus's uh, claim to be the Messiah. Jesus has arrived on the scene and he said, "I'm the Messiah. I am the Christ. I'm the Anointed One. I am the the Human One. I am the Son of Man. I am the One that God sent to." to bring healing into this world, to set right everything that has gone wrong in the world. I am the one that God promised centuries before to send to the world today, that that's who I am. And we've been looking at the way different people have responded to it. We began at the very beginning of chapter 11 with the way John the Baptist responded. And then we've seen over the last several weeks the way that uh, Jesus uh, presented himself and different people responded to him differently. There were Pharisees, that was a religious group. There was a, a group of religious experts. There was whole communities in which Jesus had done miracles. We've seen the way different people have responded to to Jesus and his messiahship. But today, Jesus is addressing crowds. Jesus is, we hear um, in uh, in verse 46, it says, while Jesus was speaking to the crowds, Jesus is speaking to anybody in particular. So that means he's speaking to us, that we don't have to be Pharisees, we don't have to be John the Baptist, we don't have to be um, uh, those other people where it's more of a where it's more of an effort to kind of say, okay, well, in this way, this speaks to me, right? Right now, Jesus is making his most generic his generic statement of who he is and what it means for us to be the Messiah. So this is a very um, very uh, uh, general statement of what it means for us, and and he's asking how we will respond to 
to him. But the way he does that, I think, is is family. And the reason for that is because everybody's got a family. Some people have better families. Some people have worse families. But we've all got families. So we read that Jesus had a family, too. So he is speaking to the crowds. So he is speaking to people, people generally. He's speaking to us. He's speaking to the crowds. And his mother and brothers stood outside trying to speak with him. And someone says, look, your mother and brother are outside wanting to speak with you. And you you might hear in that, Matthew has specifically said twice that they are outside. They are not inside. They're not where the crowds are. They're outside. Now, in some passages, it's easy to kind of miss that because in some passages, we hear the crowds are all around the building. And no one can get through. But obviously this guy got through with the message, your family's outside. So it's not that. The crowds are inside the building. Now, I don't know what kind of first century building could have had a big crowd, but maybe it wasn't all that big of a crowd by our standards. I don't know. So we're not talking about, you know, the Sullivan Arena or something. I I don't know what this building is, and I don't know how big the crowds are, but it's crowds. And the family is not there. The family is outside. Matthew tells us twice that... They are outside. So we don't know why they're outside. Um, famously, there were people who couldn't get in and they came into the roof. So um, whatever it is, the family seems content to stay outside waiting to talk to Jesus. Now, why do they want to talk to Jesus? Well, Matthew doesn't tell us, but um, Mark re- recounts the same incident. And in Mark's biography, he says this. He says, Jesus entered a house. A crowd was gathered again, so it was impossible for him and his followers even to eat. Now again, that doesn't mean that there were too many people and there was a press of people. It meant he was busy, right? People showed up and they said, you know, can you put my head back on or whatever, whatever particular problems they, <laughs> whatever particular pro- problems they, they presented, they, they, they heard this, um, they, they showed up and Jesus is kept busy. So he's busy, but not necessarily inundated with people. So it says, when his family heard what was happening, they came to take control of him. They were saying, he's out of his mind. Now, maybe maybe what that means is that they were just concerned. This guy, he needs to take care of himself. He can't help anybody else if he's not helping himself. That he needs to eat properly, he needs to rest, he needs to not do the things that will make him occupationally insane. So they're saying he's out of his mind. We're going to intervene. So we know a little bit about that. We know that they have some concerns, but whatever the, whatever the, the, uh, whatever they plan to do about their concerns isn't mentioned. They're just outside waiting to have that private word with Jesus so they can take him away or they can say, dude, you've got to get, you know, things under control, whatever it is. And Jesus, answers this person. Jesus answers the person like this. He says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Now, in the first century, that wasn't a question. You couldn't ask that question. Families today are much more malleable. They're much more um, uh, contingent. They're much more something that we get to decide about than they were in the first century. In the first century, your family was your family, and that was the way it was. It just was that way. I mean, literally, it was a patriarchal society. I mean, you know, we use that term today, but it was the law. You know, there was a patriarch, and he was in charge of the family, and he had 
the rights of justice within that family. You know, he, the patriarch was in charge. It was a family-oriented structure, and there wasn't a family, and there wasn't uh, a society, and there wasn't any way that somebody could have that question, who is my brother, who is my mother, that everybody knew that, for better or worse. Some families are better, some families are worse, but everybody knew the answer. And Jesus says, says, why? Who are they? Who are my brother and sister? So that makes it a great question uh, for us in a way that it wouldn't have for the first century. They would have gone, I don't even get your question. And we can say, actually, no, I understand. Because for us, families are much more um, uh, uh, socially constructed. I mean, they're, they're much more contingent. We get to decide more things. We have more freedom about what a family is. We, you know... Famously, over the last couple of decades, this country has been debating whether or not same-sex marriage constitutes a family. That's something that has now, the courts have decided, so society will will uh, progress any further it needs to in that direction. I think the courts were really uh, lagging behind society in that area. But, but as may be, that's a place where we've had that debate, and for better or worse, um, our, our culture has changed what was the traditional definition of a family. And so, so that's one example. But there's all kinds of ways that our, our definitions are more flexible and contingent. We have more freedom to define what is a family today than they did in the first century. Uh, we have more single parent families. In the first century, a single parent family was a catastrophe. It meant almost always that somebody had been, had been, um, uh, widowed. Or became a widower, or it meant that they had been rejected very cruelly by somebody who divorced them. That divorce was something that you could do in those days, but it had enormous repercussions. And it almost always happened to women, and they were destitute as a result of it. They were often uh, in a place where all they could do is beg. So uh, to be a single-parent family in, in our culture today is not a good thing. I mean, the poverty rate's about five times as high for single-parent families in our culture today as it is for uh, two-parent families. But in that culture, it was a catastrophe. So we are more able to, to have single-parent families, that that is something that we are, our culture is more capable of, of um having within it is single parent families there's other things there's how many how many blended families i've forgotten the statistics but but it, it's a great number of families today are blended that there's there's step siblings or there's step parents or things like that that families are blended that that again this is a place where our culture is much more contingent it's much more something that that people have have decided on their own and and that freedom you know, it has its, there's something, there's something great about freedom, but it comes at a cost. That, that that freedom does actually have a cost. If, if, um, people leave you alone, that means people leave you alone. That, that you have fewer social, uh, support networks in place by default. Now you may be able to forge some of those yourself, but you're largely on your own. You get to pretty much decide what a family is. But that means you've got to decide what a family is. There's there's no default settings in the way that there were in the first century. So so we have families, and we're going to hear this question differently. For us, yeah, people ask that question. Who is my brother? Who is my sister? What does it mean to be a family today? In the first century, this was a much harder question for people to even get their head wrapped around. For us, it's like, yeah, yeah, I've, I've wondered that. 
we have we have people who are more socially uh, spread out. You know that that um, uh, I moved uh, when I went to college and never went back. I mean, I've visited, but I've been gone from my hometown now for forty years, and that's not unusual in our culture today. People join the military, they go to college, they get a transfer at their company, and then they're on the other side of the country and they're, you know, phoning on weekends or something. Our our families are thinner, that they don't have the, the daily uh, um, uh, uh, reconnection that they would have in the first century. They're also a lot smaller. Our, our families today are significantly smaller than they would have been in the first century or even 50 or 100 years ago. Families today are a lot smaller. And and because we're geographically spread out, because our families are smaller, that means we don't have the cousins and the, the aunts and the uncles. We don't have the large extended family that maybe show up once once a year at Thanksgiving or something. But other than that, our families are smaller, and we are pretty much in the business of defining who is my brother, who is my sister. And that comes, that, that freedom comes with a cost because we have to define those things. And yet, families are good things. We know families are good things. Jesus had a family. You know, every human being has a family. And the reason is because out of all the species known to science, we are the one that takes the longest to develop and be able to become self-sufficient. Some of you have children or grandchildren, and you're saying, well, it hasn't happened yet, right? And, and you know, you, we talk about failure to launch and so forth. But even in, you know, even a, a thousand years ago, people take a long time to grow up and be able to be independent. So that's just, that's just the reality of, of who we are. Jesus needed that. You know, he was born, but he didn't float above the earth and just kind of, you know, food came from nowhere. He was a human being. Jesus is still a human being. Jesus needed to be nursed. He needed somebody to change his diapers because he was a helpless baby. And even even before sin entered the world, in the garden, when when man is in his paradisal state, everything is utterly perfect. Nobody needs somebody else to take care of them. Nobody needs anything in paradise. And God says, actually, you do need something. You need a helper. It's not good for the human being to be alone. I will make him a helper. God wants us to be connected together in families. This is God's design, and he approves of it. And so this question lands on us differently but the one thing we're sure of as we hear it is that families are good things. Some of us have better families. Some of us have worse families. But families in general are a good thing. So Jesus asks, who are my, who is my brother? Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And then he answers his own question. He stretches out his hand. He gestures at his disciples. And he says, look, here are my mother and my brothers. Now, in the first century, again, this is something they would have said, you don't turn your back on your family like that. But Jesus is not turning his back on his family. He's including more people in it. But we know, we know actually from, from the New Testament, Jesus' own brother eventually became a disciple, and uh, uh, James was a leader in the early church. Uh, you can read about him in, in the book of Acts. And, and traditionally, the, the letter from James is from that very same James, the brother of Jesus. So so uh, we know that uh, his brother, and we know that Jesus, in his dying breaths on the cross, he made sure that somebody would take care of his mother. 
So Jesus is not turning his back on his family. And honestly, in the first century, that would have been inconceivable that someone could really turn their back on their family. Jesus is not doing that. He's simply saying, here also is my family. And then he explains what he means. He says, whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. So what does he mean by that? Well, we know it's something to do with disciples. He's pointing at his disciples and saying, they're doing it. So what is that? What is What does he mean when he says, does the will of my Father in heaven? So does that mean the disciples never sinned? We, we heard about that earlier in our, our prayer of confession. It's like, no, Jesus doesn't mean that. He means this. He says in, in John's uh, biography, somebody asks him, what must we do in order to accomplish what God requires? And he says, this is what God requires. This is all God requires, that you believe in him whom God sent. And he goes on a few verses later and he says, um, this is my father's will that all who see the son and believe in him will have eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. So John says the same thing, except instead of saying family, he says eternal life. He says you get something right now in this world and it continues after the uh, this uh, the close of this age and the age to come you will i will raise you up at the last day he says this is the will of the one who sent me that i won't lose anything he has given me but he will raise it up at the last day so jesus says that the will of god is is to believe in him to believe in him and then in the letter to the romans paul says this he says all who are led by God's spirit are God's sons and daughters. So the family of the children of God, Jesus' brother and sister, are those who are led by God's spirit. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to lead you back again into fear. You did receive a spirit. You received a spirit who leads you, who guides you, the spirit of Jesus. What is that spirit doing? You received a spirit that shows you are adopted as his children. With this spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The same spirit agrees with our spirit because we are God's children. So to do the will of God is to believe in the one that he sent and to be led by his spirit. This is the will of God. Now, who's doing that in this picture? The family that's outside waiting for a private word or the disciples who are saying, I haven't got this all figured out and actually... When Jesus gets crucified, I'm going to run for the tall grass because I really don't have it all figured out. But I'm trying. I'm listening. I'm trying to figure out what Jesus is getting at. I have I have figured out one thing for sure, which is that God sent this guy. And I'm going to do my best to understand what that means for me. They are the ones who are doing the will of his Father. There's a much more... I don't know. It's, it's certainly a much better known version of the same thing. You, so some of you have studied this before. In Luke's, Luke's biography, we hear the story of Mary and Martha. Martha's scuttling around the kitchen, getting everything organized for dinner. And Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. And Martha comes in and says, Jesus, aren't you going to make my sister behave? Aren't you going to tell her to start doing some work around here? And Jesus says, no. Jesus says, no, she's doing the will of my Father in heaven. There's only one thing that is necessary. Mary has chosen the better part of it, and it won't be taken away from her. Jesus says, this is what it means. This is what it means to do God's will, to sit at his feet, to be his disciple, to be led by his spirit. This is 
how we are children of God. So, let me hypothesize that you like the idea of being a child of God, that you like the idea of being part of the family of God. As I said, for us, families are contingent things. We get to decide what a family is. We get to decide, you know, do I want to stay in this family? You know, do I want to, you know, go pursue dating at my old age? We get to make those decisions, right? We, we have that capability that, that people didn't in the first century. And Jesus is saying, here's a family that is available forever. That, that not just, not just forever in this life, but even after death does us part. That that is part of the family that I am, I am here to offer you. He says, he says that this is a family that is geographically everywhere. That wherever my disciples are, there I am too. That, that we can be part of the family of God wherever we go, whether we, whether we get a job transfer, whether we join the military, whether we go to college, wherever we wind up, we have a family there. And we have a family that has our back. You know, who, who wouldn't want God to have our back? You know, it's one thing to have cousin Fred, you know, cousin Fred, he can come over and help move furniture or something. But, but how about having God? What problem is beyond God's ability to help with? So Jesus is saying, this is the family that we have. We, we, we have, we, we can be part of as his disciples. So how do you do that? Well, there's a couple of things. I want to go through these pretty quickly. So the first one is baptism. Um, uh, well, the first one is to come inside the house, to sit down at Jesus' feet and say, I want to be part of this family, that I want to do the will of my Father in heaven. Jesus seems to have things, you know, I have questions, yes, but Jesus seems to be the place to go for the answers. So to get to that place first, come inside the house, but then to be baptized. And there's a lot of confusion about baptism. Let me explain what baptism means, and particularly for anybody who's thinking that, you know, I, I'm sitting in here, I'm, I've been a disciple, I've been coming to this church for a long time, whatever it is, I'm a disciple, but I don't even know why I have to be baptized. And the answer is, to get into heaven you don't, but it's something that's appropriate for you to do. And let me let me give you an example why. I have a niece and a nephew, both of whom have adopted um, uh, children. They both fostered children. And my nephew adopted uh, two boys and then later on three girls. Uh, so um, my niece adopted two, two little girls um, as part of the fostering work they were doing. And they live on the far side of the country. I've only met one of those seven children. I've only met one of them. Um, but um, but I've, I've seen them and I've heard about them because this is the age of social media. So when they post something, you know, we went to the zoo together or something like that, I hear about it, right? I can, I can learn what they're up to. But there's something that happens and I never know when it's going to happen because suddenly you get pictures. Up until then, it's like we went to the zoo and this is an elephant. And I've seen an elephant, but I've never seen those children. But something happens. A box is checked in City Hall, and now they're part of the family. And at that point, the pictures start showing up. That's what baptism is. It's it's not the checking of the box in City Hall. What it is is now you can post it on Facebook. Now you can see who you are. This is what baptism is. It's it's a celebration of your inclusion in the family of God. So if you've wondered, should I be baptized? 
That's the answer. Only if you want to show up on our Facebook. Not, not, not Facebook, but this virtual Facebook we call real life. That's what baptism is. It's a public acknowledgement that I am part of the family of God. I can be included in the photos now. The only other thing that we have to do to be disciples, to, to enter a life of discipleship, is to participate in the work of God's family, the, the work of, of learning about God, of, of being a disciple, sitting at the feet of Jesus, to come to church, to hear the word preached, to study the Bible, to pray, to do the disciplines, the spiritual disciplines, and then to do the corporate disciplines, the disciplines of, of, uh, the, the 59 things that Christians can only do together, the, the one another's of the Bible, the, the, the support one another, the, the admonish one another, the encourage one another's, all those one another's, that's part of what we do as the family of the children of God. And then we do the work of the family of the children of God. We're going to have a Northwood cleanup soon, and that's an example. We we um, we do all the things that we do as the family of the children of God. So you participate in the work that the church is doing. That's what it means to be a disciple. This whole series has been looking at the way that different people responded to Jesus. When Jesus showed up and said, here's what it means that I am the Messiah. And different people responded differently. The Pharisees, John the Baptist, the legal experts. Jesus is now talking to the crowds. Jesus is talking to us. He's saying, do you want to be my disciple? He's saying, are you going to stand outside? Or are you going to come in and sit down? Because when you do, you'll become part of my family. Harper Lee in To Kill a Mockingbird, she said that you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. This is the family you can choose, but you can't choose who's in the family. There'll be people in the family, maybe you're one of them, who the rest of us kind of go, ah, okay, God's got a plan, and I guess I'm a part of it too. So we get to have that conversation. But more than that, we get to have the conversation, do I want to be in that family? Do I want to have a universal, eternal, powerful family to have my back? Because it is not good to be alone. Jesus offers us the chance to be part of his family. And all it takes for us is to come inside, come into the family room. Let's pray. Loving God, If we have made this decision, if we have, if we have become disciples of Jesus, we pray, Lord, you would strengthen us in it to help us to, to lean in harder, to be more, um, more willing to be lead, uh, led by, by your spirit, to be, um, bolder in trusting your promises. And Lord, for those who, who aren't sure, people who are standing outside, Lord, I pray that you would um, speak to them. Help us to have the words to speak to them. Help us to demonstrate your love in a way that makes them want to be part of your family. We pray all these things to Christ our Lord. Amen.